is the Pedestrian Podcast. I don't know. That's just what pedestrian average mediocre receivers do. What's up? What's up? My man Deion Sanders, we all right, huh? We all right? Yeah, we all right. We're going to go to the Super Bowl again, being all right. The official podcast of the UK Seahawkers. We are going to follow you. You lead us, okay? Like I told you before, you lead us to darkness, we will follow you. Here are your hosts, Stuart Court. I'm probably wrong. I'm wrong on a hell of a lot of things. And Adam Nathan. And I think if that's the philosophy you have going into every game, more often than not, you score more points, you'll win. Go Hawks. Welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. As ever, it is myself, Stuart Court, and Adam Nathan. Hello. Uh, now, for those who have been with us for, when there, since when there were three of us on this pod, or since it's been just me and Adam, know that we have had a few names at the top, top of the guest bucket list wildly. In this, it, we get to tick off one of those names here. A man who finished his career as a Seahawk, third in the all-time catches, third in yards, and second in touchdowns in franchise history. A undrafted free agent in 2011 to a Seahawks legend, the someone who, for both me and Adam, is in the upper echelon of not just sportsmen, but people we have followed throughout various sporting interests. It is properly cool, wild, and any other exuberant adjective you can think of to say, welcome to the pedestrian podcast, Doug Baldwin. Hey fellas, thank you for having me, and I'm I'm thrilled that it's called the pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you noticed that one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, before this part, and back in the day when we first started, your um, soundbite to chat with Dion Sanders was a massive part of our intro back in the day. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, we do we, we do appreciate that. We know you don't do many of these so massive added uh, appreciation from that. Uh, we'll get to the career and everything else, but. Uh, since we posted about it last week, there's been a lot of questions asking what you've got to ask him. You've got to ask him. So to kick off, how are we doing, Doug Baldwin? Uh, we're doing. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, all of us have been kind of just managing the world as it's been the past year and a half now, right? Just dealing with COVID and dealing with all the changes I think our society's going through. Um, I got two daughters now, so... You know, I got a different perspective on the world and like, you know, what's <laughs> what's going to happen in the future? What kind of world are my daughters going to be growing up and living in? Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm, I'm you know, my family's healthy. I'm happy. We're, we're blessed in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's lot, lots of things to be grateful for, but also just, you know, wondering what the future looks like. Yeah. Uh, so when, when uh, we found out that you'd come on, everyone wanted to know the same thing. And that's, what's the deal with the 17-second microwave Pop-Tarts? <laughs> Man, I, I grew up on on 17 seconds in the microwave, a Pop-Tart, either in, I don't know, um, I don't, uh, clearly it's not healthy, but the spray-on <laughs> butter. Uh-huh. You know, you know what I'm talking about. So yeah. You spray, you spray the butter on. It's clearly <laughs> not butter, but you spray it on, uh, and you put it in the microwave for 17 seconds just to get the inside nice and warm and gooey. It's fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm sure it's come up a lot over the course of this conversation. But you, you got your family first foundation, which is all set up in Renton. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And you said that one reason that you wanted to do that is because when you first got to Seattle in 2011 it's somewhat rooted in a teriyaki spot in the city yeah two questions firstly 
can we have a location directions for it next time me and Adam are in uh, in Seattle and in Renton and what makes that place Renton and that teriyaki spot special? That was a good question. Um, so yeah, the, the, the community center is not currently built just yet. It will be built breaking ground this spring. We were supposed to break ground in 2020, but of course COVID hit changed everything. Um, so we're breaking ground hopefully in the spring. Um, it's right next to Cascade elementary school. It's in kind of like a, a more, um, kind of like the, I wouldn't say the heart of Renton, but it's, you know, the heart of the residential area in Renton in this specific area, at least, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a vibrant community that, uh, to your point, there was a teriyaki spot that was like a, a half a mile down the block from where the community center is going to be built. And when I went in there one, like one day, 2011 or 2012, um, there was just kids hanging out there, high school kids. And, uh, it's just weird. Like, you know, I don't, what kind of situations is it? There's this high school kid just hanging out in this mama teriyaki shop and just, and outside. And, you know, there's really nothing else around it. It was just this teriyaki spot. Um, and so I asked the kids and I asked the lady who owned the shop, like, you know, <laughs> why are these kids hanging out here? And basically the sentiment was they didn't really have anything else to do. You know, that was kind of their hangout spot. Um, I grew up in the back end of the Salvation Army and that was the community center. And it had kind of all the resources that were pouring into this community center. And it was basically like my second home as a kid, you know, a place where I could go feel safe, truly be a kid, um, have some mentors and some, some uh, people to help guide me just as a young man. Uh, and, you know, when I saw that there was kind of like a void for that, thought maybe it might be a good idea to do that there. Yeah. So we normally go through this kind of chronologically, but I was listening to the interview you did with Prim Stripper Pat a couple of years ago, I think now. And something you said really struck me. You said, people love me, but they don't know me. Uh, and as a fan of yours, kind of from what I knew on the field, that it resonates. So if we were to take away 89 and to give people a prism to listen to this interview and as we go through kind of maybe the last decade, who, who's Doug Baldwin in 2021 and, and how should people people look at that you know it's funny you mentioned that because i'm i'm now trying to figure that out myself you know <laughs> um i've been playing football since i was six years old it's it's really all i knew it was kind of my escape you know it was um it was something i kind of really leaned heavily my identity it was attached to it still is attached to it in some ways uh and i never really worked on the other aspects of my life. Like, you know, who am I outside of football? What do I enjoy outside of football? I never really worked on those things or even thought about it. And, you know, when, when you leave the game and all the affirmation that I had received from performing, right. Was no longer there. Um, I didn't have the instant gratification or the instant affirmation of who I was because I was performing kind of felt like I was lost. Kind of felt like I didn't have my footing, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I was, I was starting the process when I had that interview with Prem. Um, and, you know, really what it came down to is like, look, I'm a human being just like everybody else, you know, like I, I know that there's some things that, you know, they, they look glamorous and they feel glamorous, but I promise you, like, there's, you know, I'm still a human. There's still some substance here that, you know, has, has shit that I got to deal with, you know, to be honest. Um, and it didn't stop. You know, I got married, I had children and, you know, all of the things that I thought were important while I was playing football and, you know, 
they just, they weren't, they weren't as important anymore. And my priorities changed and I saw the world from a different angle and a different viewpoint. Um, and then, you know, now I'm at the stage of, I'm, I'm much further along now than I was, but I was asking myself, like, who am I? You know, what, what do I, number one, what do I stand for? What are my core values? So if I show up in the world in any capacity, whether it's publicly, privately, like I know who I am and I can still stand confident on that. Um, I really had to do some deep soul searching for that. And so if you want to, if you want to know the key takeaways, um, number one, um, <laughs> I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, and, and I, I'm hesitant. I, I shouldn't say I'm hesitant to say that. I'm not hesitant to say that, but I also understand that sometimes that can come with some, you know, some baggage for some people when they hear that. Right. I'm, I don't want, I don't even, I don't even want to get into that. Um, I believe that Jesus said, love your neighbor, period. Right. And that's the way that I view um, how I show up in the world. I want to love my neighbor. I want to exemplify being, being empathetic and loving my neighbor. That's number one. That's number one who I am. Number two, I'm a husband. I got a wife, right? Like that's my queen. That's, she's my world. And we have two daughters. So I'm a, I'm a father. Um, and so now that's my, that's my world. That's my package. That's what I'm focused on, right? Like the tenacity and the, uh, mindset that I had when I was preparing for games and trying to, um, you know, be the best receiver that I could possibly be. I'm just transferring that energy into being the best husband and the best father I could be. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's the most important thing that I can be doing at this point in my life. Cause that those are, those are my priorities. Um, and I hope that, you know, flaws and all, people see me as a human being that I am and not just, you know, not just the football player to entertain them on Sundays. Cause you know, which was fun. Don't get me wrong, but I'm much more than that. We, um, we had Danny O'Neill who was Seattle times now on seven ten ESPN Seattle. And we, when we, when we brought your name up to him, he said that he hopes and thinks that Doug Baldwin's got a lot of more things to say and he looks forward to hearing them. So I kind of just, echoes what you just said this yeah because there's people out there who covered you in your previous life as it were who can't wait to see and can't wait to hear every every word and every syllable you got to say for the next 15 20 25 years in that community uh so back in 2011 the draft comes you're going drafted the lockout is happening and then seattle hellaciously really bold and you get the letter from john schneider it's taken on a life of its own since really but what was that whole process like? And when that letter come through to you with obviously your college guy, your your running mate really in Richard Sherman was already up there as a draft pick. That must have been yeah. a weird process to go to live through as a young adult. Yeah, it was. And you know, part of the strange part of it too was that I had no other experience. This was this was, you know this was my time to go into the NFL, potentially go into the NFL. And this was what it was. This was a lockout year. And um, so I really didn't know anything different. And I was just kind of rolling with the punches as, um, you know, cause everything was so fluid. Things were happening so quickly. Things were changing, you know, that I think at some point they didn't think that the season was going to play, but then two days later we, I got a call and had to show up for, for camp, you know? Uh, so I just, my mindset was like, I just have to focus on staying ready. So when the opportunity comes, I'm ready to go and make the best of that opportunity. 
that whole process though. So um, during, actually during the draft, right. That was when kind of the time was open where teams could call players to either tell them that they were, you know, they were going to draft them or they were considering drafting them. I got a call from Kippy Brown um, and Pete Carroll and uh, Kippy Brown was a receivers coach at the time. And they basically told me, Hey, look, we're not going to draft you, <laughs> which as you can imagine, was kind of a, you know, it was a, it was, it was a shot to my pride. Right. They said, we're not going to draft you, but we really, really want to bring you in as, you know, as one of our um, main guys for, for camp. And so I had to sit with that for a little bit. And then once the draft was over, then Sherm called me and Sherm was like, Hey, they really want you. And of course, you know, Sherm is my brother. So I was like, well, I'm more heavily leaning towards Seattle because Sherm's already there. There were some other options on the table, um, but ultimately ended up going with Seattle and partly because uh, John Snyder's letter, right? He hand wrote, he hand wrote it and then emailed it to me. But, um, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a gesture that I, I don't know. It was just kind of, it was different. You know, it felt different. It felt, it felt genuine. It felt, um, it felt real. And, uh, that was a, it, it was, it was part of the reason, but it was a major part of the reason why I ended up going to Seattle. Was that something which tied you to Schneider more over your years in Seattle more than maybe you would have been tied to the GM at the Eagles? So. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, John and I have a good relationship to this day. You know, we, there have been a number of occasions where I have, dis- I have disagreed with his decisions and I have shared those <laughs> with him. Right. And I think, you know, to his point, um, or to his credit, you know, he's, he's managed those relationships really well. I, I think for the most part, um, you know, and he's, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's hard, especially in that business. I think it's really hard to maintain genuine relationships just because there's so much business that, that goes along into it, you know, and people say it's not personal, but to us, it is personal. Um, but yeah, that letter, um, that definitely created a, it, it started a relationship. And I think, you know, I'm, I will always have a certain level of respect for him because of the way that he handled things while I was there. Yeah, 2012's often seen as like year dot for the that that team blossoming into what it became. But the germs very much were, were sowed in 2011 with you know, yourself and Sherm coming in and KJ. At what point does it feel like something's brewing? Because I, I remember that you've said before, like it was amazing what a group of men can come together and do. And that seems much more existential than just what happens on the field. Did, did, do you feel something growing as the time goes on and, and you can almost see, well, this is definitely going to end well because I can, I can tell what's happening here. Yeah. You know, that, that it's funny you mentioned that I was actually talking about this with Sherm. Uh, what's it? Yesterday, actually, I was actually talking to him, him about this yesterday. Um, you know, in 2011, like there were so many new guys, there were so many new faces and, you know, not only just us that were coming in, but also guys from the previous year that the previous year was their first year in Seattle. And so we, like, we had an opportunity to kind of create this culture, you know? Um, It was brand new. It was really fresh. And you had all these guys who were, you know, for lack of a better term, we were just alpha males, alpha competitors, right? I'll say that we were alpha competitors. Um, And we fought, like, we, we literally, (laughs) we literally fought, you know, on the football field and in the locker room and like, 
it wasn't, but it wasn't the negative way that, you know, can sometimes be described. Like, you know, when you have a large family, you don't always get along, you know, sometimes the bigger brother and the little brother, they fight and they argue. But at the end of the day, you know, if you go outside of the family, they have each other's back, you know? Um, and so to your point, you know, in, in 2011, I think we had started to cultivate this brotherhood um, that felt, it, it felt ba- uh, built on a, on a true foundation, right? Like you had guys who came from different walks of life, but when we went to the practice field, we practiced so hard, you know? And I'll say this, the guy who lead, who led that charge was Marshawn. You know, Marshawn, it, think about it this way. You know how people talk about strain, right? Football, football terms, they talk about strain. We do just strain, strain on the football field. But nobody really understands that word strain. Strain is not about like going on the football field and trying to get your job done. Strain is about caring about the guy next to you, right? You know, like, when you care about the person next to you, you care about their well-being. You're going to go the extra mile. When you love the person next to you, you're going to do what you have to do in order to protect that person, do what's good for that person, do what's, you know. And Marshawn was like leading the way in that. He would, the way that he would run. There's no way that I'm not going to get that safety. I have to get this safety on this run play so that he doesn't hit Marshawn. I'll be damned if I let him hit Marshawn. You know, that was the kind of love that we had for Marshawn, and that just. You know, it, 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 it spread throughout the entire team and especially on special teams where you had myself, Ricardo Lockett, um, Jermaine Kearse coming in the next year. You had all these guys who wanted to play special teams. Yeah, we wanted to be on offense. We wanted to do the things that, you know, score touchdowns and all those things, but we were also willing to do the dirty work. And we were willing to do the dirty work because not because it was anything about ourselves, it was about the guys that we cared about, you know, like, Ricardo Lockett is my brother to this day. I remember specific moments in training and on the football field where, you know, like it was hard. And, but we would look at each other and say, let's do this shit together, you know? And that's powerful. It's motivating. And when you're on the football field and you see that guy and you need to go do something for that guy to get open or for him to, to, you know, a specific block, you're going to do it because you care about that person. That's what strain is, you know, and um, in 2011, I think we grabbed a hold of that. and We didn't let it go. Uh, one part of that 2011 team, especially that is overlooked somewhat from probably the fan base, is the play and drive to keep playing from Tavares Jackson. He left in 2012, obviously, and came back for that Super Bowl room as a backup for Russ in the Super Bowl. I think it's the last backup to play a snap in the Super Bowl as well. What was his present like in that young locker room? And particularly him playing through, which I think was a peck, peck injury he had then. And he just kept playing. Yeah. He kept going out there, kept grinding and led the team as the quarterback of that young team. And obviously, sadly since, has passed at a tragically young age. Oh, man. You know, um, it's really... Uh, T-Jack was a real one, you know? Um <laughs> Him and Sidney Rice, they every Tuesday during um, during the off season. So we would have Wednesdays off, and Tuesday nights we called it Tuesday Takeover, and we'd go over to Sidney's house, and T Jack would cook, and T Jack would cook these big meals. I mean, like home cooked <laughs> Southern meals, 
and all the receivers would come over, you know, and it was just like, it was the, it was the quarterback and the receivers, you know, and we were, we were just hanging out. We would hang out. We would play Madden, we would play 2k, um, you know, Sydney lived on the water. So we'd go fishing, we'd go on the jet skis, we'd get in the water. And it was just like those guys, T-Jack and Sydney, you know, aside from obviously him playing through the peck injury, right. And showing his resilience and his leadership on the football field. It was his genuine love for the guys next to him, you know, and he didn't, he didn't know me, you know, like I'm a, I'm a brand new rookie coming to the team, but he pulled me into this group and he was like, let's get to know you. We want to get to know you. You're a part of our family. Now we see how you play on the football field. We see how much you care about this, this, this team. You're a part of our family. And, you know, uh, to Sydney Rice's credit and especially to T-Jack, they cultivated this, this culture that was uh, on the offensive side of the ball. That was really about, you know, the guys, it was, it was about us. It was about the team. It was about this bond. And, I can't say enough about that and about T-Jack, man. He was, and then when he left, you know, he left and then he came back and he was, um, he even came back later in his career as kind of like a coach a little bit, you know, he was trying, he was getting in the coaching world and he was, um, you know, he came back as kind of like an, a consultant, just being a coach on the sideline. And even then it was just his presence and his mindfulness, the things that he would say, the way that he treated people, his laughs, you know, it was, um, it was infectious. You know, now, you know, we got to be honest, like he's a human being, you know, he had his flaws, mm. but at the end of the day, like, you know, he was trying, you know, and mm-hmm. I respected the hell out of that. Um, Cause not a lot of people do that. You know, a lot of people, it's easy for it, especially in the entertainment world. It's easy to be fake. It's easy to, you know, pass off the relationships. It's just like, you know, Oh, we're friends, but you're not really friends. Um, T-Jack, T-Jack put in the work. He was genuine about it all, you know, good, bad, and different. And I loved him for it. At the end of the 29 season, uh, sorry, 2019 season, um, I remember a lot of Seahawks players and fans saying, this feels just like it did in 2012 after the Atlanta loss um, in, you know, the, the field goal in the last minute. And I don't know why, but it struck me, or I almost took offense to it, maybe because 2012 was the first team that I really fell in love with for, for Seattle. But also it struck me as a little bit disrespectful, A, of the talent of the team that we had then. And I still don't think that's talked about anywhere near enough. Like the talent that was on that mm-hmm. team was maybe unprecedented. And secondly, the way you talk about the cultivation of, of an atmosphere, you, I don't feel like you can just do that. And it almost felt flippant to me to, to make comparisons to, to that team, which was so great. I'm not saying that you took a slight from it, but do you ever feel like it's just underappreciated how much went into making that Super Bowl winning team? Because to me, it, it seems like it, it's not talked about enough. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you there's a banner hanging in the facility in the practice um, field, and you just look at the names, and the names on that list, it's, just, it's incredible, right? I think um, Mike B and Cliff, they were backups mm-hmm. <laughs> on the team at that on that team, you know, and that you think like, that's incredible to have guys who were just that good as backups on, on our defensive line. Um, yeah. You know, number one, I think to your point, like the, the talent isn't talked about enough. Right. Um, I think culture and leadership, like, 
you know, it, it, it looks differently to people mm -hmm. and it feels differently to people. I know what I felt. I know what I experienced. And we went to two Super Bowls off of that, you know? Um, so that's, that's going to resonate with me for the rest of my life. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, that part of that is it's part of it is, it, yeah, it's not talked about enough, but number two, it's really hard to talk about because it's really hard to build that culture. It's really hard to have the leaders in there who are genuine and who want to hold each other accountable. Um, you know, like Cam Chancellor, I, Cam was, Cam was the epitome of the leader in the locker room, you know, and if you weren't doing your job, even if, even if it was me on offense, Cam would watch my offensive practice film, you know? <laughs> and if I was, if I was being lazy or if I didn't do my job, like Cam would call it out. He would come to me and he'd be like, Hey, what are you doing here? You know? And like, I respected that because it meant that he cared about me. He was on the defensive side of the ball, watching our offensive practice film, telling me that I wasn't doing my job <laughs> and not, not in a negative way, but like, Hey, like Marshawn's counting on you to get this done. Max Unger is counting on you to get this done. You need to go out there and get your job done because your, your boys are counting on you to get it done. You know, and that, like, when you, it's not talked about enough. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. uh, over those first few years, you scored your first touchdown in the league against him. And Paddy Travis Will, who's one of our Patreon members, asked that, what was it like going from Jim Harbour at college with Pete as your rival coach and flip reversing that for those first few years in Seattle? And was it and was it extra well, mind, was it extra sweet scoring against Harbaugh immediately <laughs> in regular season play? Oh man, I think it couldn't have been set up better that our first game, my <laughs> Sherman and I's first game was against Harbaugh and the 49ers. I, I it couldn't have been set up any better. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean the the difference, obviously, I and mean, you all know the difference, you know. Mm -hmm. Um it's a drastic difference between Jim and, and Pete. They both have a different, they, they both have different styles of how they coach, but they, also, they both have very similar philosophies, right? Like they want to run the ball, control the clock, play stout defense, which I do believe is championship football. Like, you know, I think that's how you, that's how you win games. Um, I shouldn't say games. You, you can, you can win regular season games playing differently, but when it comes to championship, you know, football, even you talk about, we could talk about playoffs and basketball, right? I'm a basketball fan. I love basketball. Um, it's the same thing. You know, it's, it's just a different game. You have to be, you have to move differently. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one, one thing over those years is that not a lot comes from press conferences usually, but when you, which um, Mike Bennett and obviously with his two pumps, was it two pumps is fine, three pumps gets you a fine. It gave insight and many, many wildly athletic people like myself and Adam, uh, we just really wanted to go on and put on an ill-fitting helmet. Was that something you were aware of when you were on that platform, obviously talking after maybe after a hard day at practice, answering the same questions you asked seven days prior? <laughs> um, it just came part of the territory. You know, um, you just, you just figured it out. And, you know, there was, there was really no curriculum. There was no, um, crash course on how to deal with the media, you know? Um, so a lot of us made a lot of mistakes early on, but I think it was good for us because it forced us to kind of grow and mature and be thoughtful about what we were saying and what we were doing. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it got monotonous and, but at the same time, when, you know, specific pundits would say things negatively about specific players, you know, you couldn't help but hear it and want to respond back. So <laughs> it, it, it played a role in some ways. <laughs> uh, 2013 Super Bowl 48 we've asked Cliff uh, Mike Rob and KJ the same question so we might it's almost a critch of the pod at this point um, what day in the build up to the Denver Broncos Super Bowl game did you know that the Seahawks were winning the Super Bowl um, Everyone's had the same answer. So yeah. from, an, from an alibi standpoint, you know, you guys commit a crime <laughs> together because the answers have been on lock all the way through so far. Did they say it was the first practice and how fast we were moving? Uh, they said the Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday week, the first week, like the first time they watched film, they sat there and went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't as confident as them, right? Like, I mean, I was confident, don't get me wrong, but... Mm. Um, you know, those guys, they were in a different mind frame than I was. They had, they saw the game at a level that I didn't see it at just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was confident, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was the two weeks before the, the um, two weeks before the game, it was a Tuesday. We were off. We had our, uh, our meetings and we were watching the film and yeah, you could tell in the film, like, Oh, these, these guys aren't as great as everybody's talking about. <laughs> We might be able to beat these guys up a little bit, you know, but you know, it's the Super Bowl and it was Peyton Manning, so you you kind of you know you humble yourself a little bit. Um, but when we got when we got to um, to New Jersey and we had our first practice, um, we were flying. <laughs> we were flying like we were practicing like it was the first week of the season. We were going hard. And I remember um, it was uh, Walter Thurman and I, we were going head to head in practice and one-on-ones. Um, and we were, we were going so hard. And I just remember Walt and I was walking off the field and I was like, Denver has no idea what's about to happen. To <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we went out there and we actually did it. Yeah, uh, KJ said that you can only enjoy the win when all the star- starters were started to begin taken out. Did you allow yourself to? Obviously, you scored the final points of the game, I think, in think the start so. of the fourth yeah. quarter to put the forty burger on the scoreboard. Did Did you enjoy that? What thirty, forty four minutes before you got your hands on the trophy? <laughs> I mean, I'd be lying if I if I said I did. <laughs> you know? We were, we were all trying to tell each other the clock's not over yet. You know, let's finish it, finish it. Or the clock's not on zero yet. Finish out the game. But yeah, I mean, it was a celebration really early, you know, and it was our celebration. It was the way that, you know, the, the all the work that we had put in, um, all the battles, you know, all the, all the wounds, all the scars leading up to that point, you know, and to be able to celebrate, semi-celebrate without the game even being done yet it was pretty special it was pretty special did that time uh to celebrate give you time to prep the incredible google it tear down you put together on fire <laughs> no that was already prepped that was prepped before the game and i was i was waiting for my opportunity i told i told percy i said they better not let me score <laughs> they better not let me score oh man yeah that was prepped way before the game 
It's incredible. You uh, you had Champ Bailey on skates in like the second minute. And I think for me watching, that's when I thought this is, this is going to get nasty. Um, you, you had a knack of, especially like in cover zero situations, it was like, well, Doug's going to score now because this is, this is just, what are they doing? Can you talk us through a moment, maybe a particular play you can remember, maybe that one from huddle to the end zone where you can see it in your mind? Because I'm fascinated to know what it's like from your perspective, the tape study to lining up and you can nerd out as much as you want. We, we love, love all the details of stuff like this. Oh man, I do too. I love the, I love the, um, I love the art of the sport, mm -hmm. you know, the, the strategy, the chess level strategy. Um, you know, to be quite honest with you, my greatest game, which nobody will ever say, and I, I made a dumb immature mistake in that game <laughs> is the second, second Super Bowl. I was up, I was matched up against Darrell Revis. Mm -hmm. I murdered him <laughs> all, all game long. Um, I think, you know, be candid. I think Russ was a little bit, a little scared to throw in his direction. You know, I don't, at that point, I don't know. I don't, I don't think Russ knew who I was <laughs> fully, you know, what I was fully capable of doing. Um, but I murdered Darrell Revis, murdered him. And like that was kind of, I, and that was my, to me, that was kind of like, this was, going into the game I was like, okay, this is my stage to show just how good I am. I get matched up with one of the greatest defensive backs to ever play the game. So they say, and so I get to show who I am. And I, I studied Darrell Revis. Like I had never studied anybody else. I knew him as a man, right? <laughs> like I knew who Darrell Revis was as a human being. I studied him so much and I knew his mannerisms, his body language, how, like when he was confident, when he wasn't confident, which arm he wanted to throw up in what situation, um, you know, what the defense, what, depending on what defense was called based on what play and formation we were in, where he was going to line up and what he was thinking, where his help was and why he was going to push me in a certain direction. And I murdered him. I don't think, I, I legitimately don't think he covered me on one route. <laughs> I was, I was open the entire game. Um, and, and that, like that, that was, you know, even though I didn't get the ball thrown my way, like that was the confidence I needed to know, you know, A, not only am I good enough to play against the greats, but I understand the game to the level now where even though I'm not the strongest, biggest, fastest, I can still get open. I can still beat you. Um, and so, you know, I, <laughs> I wish I had the film of that game, um, <laughs> but you know, and, and I, I mean, I could go on and on about the details of all of it. You know, I remember. A specific <laughs> Serious. I remember, it's great, it's great. I remember, um, I remember a specific slant. I was on the right hand side. Uh, we were, I think we were going, if you were looking at the tape, we were going to the right. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the right hand side. I was in the slot and I had a slant, but the slant, it was, you know, it was a different timing of the route, right? I had some time to kind of get open and, I remember just, it just felt like I was playing basketball and it was so fluid and I set him up and it happened exactly how I saw it on film the previous two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I just left him. <laughs> and, and, you know, by that time, Russ had threw the ball on the other side of the field, but I was wide open and I was just like, yeah, this is it. I, I yeah, he can't cover me. He, he, he ain't got a shot. He ain't got a chance, you know, and that it, it was, it wasn't just the, 
it was all of it, you know, like I, and I do, I miss that part of it. I miss, I miss being able to play the chess game at that level and have that instant affirmation gratification that I won, you know? Um, yeah, I'll stop there. That, but that, I, oh man, you got me going there. <laughs> so was a massive part of that era as well was the iron sharpen, sharpens iron, Mm-hmm. like vibe of everything if you, you were going against Richard Sherman Walter Thurman Byron Maxwell Brandon Browner yeah. did that I mean that, must, that, that can only be a positive net positive can it over that over yeah absolutely all of those guys brought different skill sets to the table you know mm-hmm. Sherman was kind of the full package we already know that he he had it all he was could be, he could be really aggressive at the line of scrimmage he knew the X's and O's and the chess match at that level too so even if you got in position like he would look at what the um, the concept was for the offense, the down and distance, the the you know the time of the game, and he would know what ba- basically on all that information what route you were running. Right? I remember one time I beat Sherm so bad at the line of scrimmage, I got into my route, I turned around, and Sherm was just waiting there for me. <laughs> you know, because he knew he knew he knew what we were doing, he knew what was happening. It was just. You know, that I think that was also part of the process of me learning, like, okay, there's more to this than just me being athletic out here, right? Um, but, you know, you, and then you talk about Brandon Browner. Brandon Browner was, he was a physical specimen at the line of scrimmage. If you, if he got his hands on you, it was, it was over. You weren't going to move. And so he really forced us to be really good with our hands, right? Um, Walter Thurman, really good in the slot, really smart corner, really athletic. If you didn't have your second and third move figured out and, um, you know, executed to perfection, Walt was going to be on it. And he wasn't, you know, he was going to be right there. And so he really forced me to hone in on my second and third level of my route and understanding the concept past the, you know, the initial move off the line. Um, Byron Maxwell was phenomenal playing off, right? When he, he would play off and he would just read things and if you if you gave anything away, he was going to pick it off. All right. So he really forced me to be disciplined in my route running. You know, like we talk about when you're running and when you're about to go and break down, don't lift up. Because when you lift up, that's telling the defensive back that you're about to stop. Right. And Byron used to always talk to me about that, you know. And so I, he, we, we would discuss different ways that I could do it without telling him stuff, but also use it to my advantage where I would. I would pretend like I was coming up so the defensive back would think I'm breaking and then I would go and sort of switch it up on the defensive back. So, we, I mean, we just had, we had a lot of fun in that way. There was a lot of stuff that we were able to do. And those guys, to your point, they contributed so much information and, and educated me in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, something that wasn't fun. I'm just wondering what was your, what was the process? What was your point of view and the process of everything that happened at the end of 49? Oh man. Um, hmm. um <laughs> I think I think a lot of us were at a at a loss for words just like everybody else, you know. Um and this goes back to what I was saying previously about strain, right? Like we knew who our engine was on offense. We knew who our, our leader was, our heart, our end, like Marshawn was our guy, you know, like, you know, the uh, Beast Quake 2.0 in Arizona. Mm. My favorite ever play. 
if you watch that play again, you'll see Ricardo Lockett <laughs> yeah. running, like sprinting his heart out down the field to go get a block. That's strength. And why, why, does that, why does it look like that? Is because Ricardo cares about Marshawn. You know, that, he's doing that for his brother, not for any other reason. He's not doing it for the Seahawks. He's not doing it for the X's and O's. He's doing it because he loves Marshawn. That was the strain, the level of strain that we had for each other in that culture on that team. You know, right, wrong, or indifferent, I firmly believe we should have handed the ball off to Marshawn. I get it. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe the pass was the right technical decision. I don't know. In my heart of hearts, and as somebody who, you know, is I, I play the sport off of emotion. I, sp- I play this. Yes, I play it from a, a strategy chess level, but the strategy and chess level also involves the emotion, right? Like, do you think if we handed the ball Marshawn that he wasn't going to get into the end zone, <laughs> right? The offensive line was going to do everything in there. The guys, the guys that were up front on the defense, they had no chance, you know, like. Marshawn was going to get in there one way or the other. He was going to get in there. Um, and to not have that opportunity was really, was really devastating. You know, I think, and none of us had time to process it. You know, the play was called and, you know, to be quite honest, like <laughs> number one, we weren't handing it off to Marshawn. So I, I kind of looked sideways at the call when it came in. And then I was thinking to myself, okay, it's a pass play, but the pass play was, we knew that they were going to be in man-to-man on the goal line, but the pass play, selfishly, I was on the zone side. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to be in the play. I wasn't going to have an opportunity. So selfishly, I'm like, well, shit. Like, you know, <laughs> if we're going to throw the ball, at least though, I want, I want an option. I want an opportunity, right? But I was zoned. So like, I knew my, my route wasn't going to be viable. Um, and then I look over and I see the play and I see it get picked off. And I don't, I don't have time to process that. You know, my whole thought process is we're about to win the second Super Bowl in a row. I don't, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. We're on the one yard line. And, it, and then that happens. And, you know, I just, I, you don't, you can't process it in the moment. And then as you start to, as you start to process it after a while, you start, you know, you start to get angry. You start to get, you start to question things. You don't like what, you know, like it's just a lot of emotions, a lot of, a lot of just, um, and you know, to be honest to this day, I still think that if we would have handed the ball off to Marshawn four times, three times in a row, and we, and if we would have lost, I think would have been okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I honestly think we would have came back the next year and beat the shit out of whoever we were going to play in the Super Bowl Cause they were going to pay for it. Right. Um, but it didn't happen that way. And, you know, it's, it's really as guys who put so much into getting to that moment, who had been playing football all of their lives. Right. And who had dreamt about not just winning one Super Bowl, but multiple Super Bowls and kind of having that expectation and feeling like we were capable of doing it. I mean, we were, we were right there on the one yard line. Right. Um, that was really hard to deal with. That was really hard to, to process. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's still some, you know, there's still some lingering emotions there, but um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm really grateful for that experience. I learned a ton, not only as a football player, but as a man, I had a whole bunch of fun. Um, 
but yeah, that was definitely a hard experience. I know that was a very in-depth answer, but I want to make sure you all, you know, felt what I, what I felt in that moment. So you talk about the lingering stuff and every time a player has retrospectively spoken about it when they've been retired, Cam Chancellor, KJ on our show a couple of weeks ago, there seems to be quite a lot of catharsis when you actually get to talk about it. And we spent four years falling in love with you guys as a community of alpha uh, competitors, as you said, who were saying whatever they wanted and they were the brashest team. And I've always thought that it felt like you were muzzled for what felt like the benefit of the team and you'd go to Hawaii and bury it. But I can't help but think that if you guys were allowed to address it at the time, it might have lifted the cloud a bit sooner. Is there anything in that? Um, you know, I think we were, we were all just trying to figure it out. You know, nobody, nobody had the answers, you know, in hindsight, we can look back now and say, yeah, we, I think we should have done it this way, you know, mm-hmm. or I think we should have, we should have talked about it this way. We should, you know, hindsight, you can go back and, and do all those things. But in the moment, it was tough. You know, it was really, really hard. And, um, you know, I, I lost my, my grandfather was an incredible influence on my life. God bless his soul. I lost him. Um, it'll be four years in September. Um, the closest thing to that Super Bowl moment you know, the, it, it felt really like mourning a death, you know, like it's not the same. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's not the same as mourning a loved one's death, but that was kind of the closest emotion that I like, you know, it was just kind of like disbelief and unsettling feeling where like you, you want to do something, but you can't, there's nothing to do. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I look back on it now and I'm like, yeah, we should have ran the ball. We should have done this. We should have, this is how we should have handled it in the locker room afterwards. But, um, you know, all of those things are in hindsight now. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm really grateful for the experience because I learned a lot. Um, that whole team, like, you know, we're a lot of the guys on that team were really, we're still really close. We still live in Seattle. You know, we, we, uh, we reminisce about those times. So it wasn't all bad. Uh, After that, in 2015, you turned that into a career year, 14 touchdowns on the season. You are still there, obviously. Jermaine is still there. Jimmy Graham is added to the fold at tight end. But the young rookie from Kansas State, Mm -hmm. Tyler Lockett, what made him hit the ground running, really, like you did back in 2011? Obviously, he's still there now, but he's somewhat overshadowed by DK. Is, Is the appreciation for number 16 from the work he put in, continues to put in, is is, is is that somewhat lacking for Tyler? And what was rookie Tyler like to see buzz around? Yeah, you know, I can't say enough about Tyler. Tyler was, when he came in, you know, he was just this young kid who, he was really funny. He knew who he was, you know, which that, that I can't state enough, just coming in and having confidence in who he was, which, is a credit to his, his family, his, his mom and his dad. Um, you know, he was really confident in who he was and he had a lot of fun just being with the guys, you know? Um, and I'll go back to like, I'll say this again, like T Jack, Sidney Rice, like they created a foundation for us, myself, Jermaine Kirst to kind of build a culture off of, you know, I, you, you guys have heard of it. Whoops. Yeah. You know, you've heard us say that, like, that's, that's a, it's a, 
it's an emotion. It's a, it's a real thing for us. You know um, it's a culture. It's the way that guys are treated when they're in the locker room. It's a, it's, it's a mindset for receivers, you know, because we knew what kind of game plan we were going into. We weren't going to, we weren't going to throw the ball a lot. We were going to run the ball a lot. So that means we wouldn't have to block a lot. And you needed guys that would come in and kind of adopt that mentality and buy into it. And Tyler did that from the very beginning, you know, he understood the work ethic that we demanded, you know, and um, I can't say enough about Jermaine Kirsch and his leadership, but Jermaine really took Tyler under his wing in a lot of ways in terms of understanding the culture that we were trying to cultivate, you know, and Tyler, he, he absorbed that so quickly and just became one of the guys, you know, and not just, obviously he had the production on the field, right. But it was also his leadership that he was displaying at such an early stage in the locker room. Um, you know, he was incredible in that way. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't think Tyler gets enough credit for that, but of course, how could he, right? Nobody, not a lot of people know that they're not in the locker room. They don't understand like the little details like that, that matter. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of guys like that who don't get the credit for, you know, not obviously the work they put on the field, but also the work they do in terms of the culture and the locker room and stuff. And Tyler's one of those guys. Yeah. Pissing you off just seems like a terrible idea, but I might be kind of floating in that direction a little bit with my <laughs> next question. So Jermaine Curse was never fully my cup of tea as a player. Um, but, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to own it. I'm happy to own it. You know, everyone has their favorites, maybe not, not their, you know, didn't have anything against the guy, just wasn't my favorite player. However, yeah. one of the most clutch guys in franchise history, and that mm -hmm. is obviously something there's hugely to be said for that. So as a teammate, and, you know, I think people pair the two of you guys together quite a lot. What was he like to work and play with? Because he, he, he seems like obviously a terrific guy. He is, man. He's um, he's one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. I, I, no, he's my brother. Mm-hmm. He is my brother. Um, he's uh, he's just a good human being, you know. He's just a good person, and he's genuine. And you know, like when he gets things wrong, he's willing to admit it and um, willing to have vulnerable and tough conversations. And he demonstrated that in the in the in the locker room. You know, he demonstrated the willingness to be vulnerable, to be a vulnerable leader. Um, you know, leadership and culture, especially when it comes to a team, everybody has a role. You know, it's not just about one leader standing up and barking orders or the one in the back who's, or one, you know, maybe the one in the front who's leading the charge, or the one in the back who's barking orders. Like you got to have leaders who are amongst people serving, you know, like really figuring out what the needs and desires and the emotional well-being is of the team, of the substance of the team. And that's what Jermaine did. You know, Jermaine was... Anybody could talk to Jermaine and Jermaine could talk to anybody, you know, it didn't matter if you were, you know, from New York or from Louisiana or from Germany, you know, um, Jermaine just had this, this gravitas to him, this, you know, magnetizing personality that he brought people together. And that was his role in our, in our locker room. And especially in the receivers room, you know, um, I was kind of the guy that was like, very strict, very disciplinarian. Like we got to do things a certain way. We're going to bust our ass, do this, do this. And Jermaine made sure that everybody was, you know, nobody was falling through the cracks. 
and everybody was heard and understood and represented and felt and seen and loved. Um, you know, and we, we just, we worked really, really well together in trying to build that culture that T-Jack and Sidney Rice built for us, you know? And um, when you see a guy like actually taking the time to be thoughtful and caring about other people, you know, um, even when it comes at the, um, at the expense of his own opportunities, you know, like it's a humbling thing to watch. And it's, uh, I'm just, I'm just really grateful for the man that he is and, you know, couldn't, couldn't be more happy and more honored to be his brother as well. And obviously he's done the full circle now. He's back working in the recruiting role at UW as well, isn't he now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one thing on that area, one of our other patrons, Dan Cohen, uh, wanted to ask you is you played in that team which had one of the best defensive units ever assembled how did it if it did affect you your mentality being on the other side with and every conversation nationally is on the defence and not on you Marshawn and then obviously later Jermaine and Jimmy and Tyler you know honestly I don't think it really bothered us you know we we would talk shit like it bothered us right? <laughs> like but it really didn't because we loved those guys and I know, you know, most fans say L.O.B. and think of the defense, but L.O.B. meant love our brother. That's what it stood for, you know, and it meant offense, defense, special teams. It was just a subgroup of guys, subset of group of guys that really bought, in, bought into the mindset of like, this is our team. This is our family. This is our tribe. Right. And we're going to build that culture off of that foundation. And. You know, yeah, those guys got the credit, rightfully so. That was a, that was one of the all-time greatest defenses in, in NFL history. But we got to go up against them every day, you know. And some days we whooped their ass. And it was really fun to do so. And there was other days and they got back to us. And, you know, to your point earlier, you said iron sharpens iron. Like, you know, we worked really, really hard in practice so that those guys could get a good look and vice versa. And so, you know, I think we, as an offense and as receivers, we had a lot of success because we were going against some of the, the best guys in the league every day. And so the guys we saw on Sunday, you know, they were nothing, no disrespect, but they weren't our guys. And I think the same thing for them. They saw the tenacity that we brought in practice every day. And so when they went out to the field, the guys that they were going against, it was cake, you know, um, but I don't think we ever had a problem with it. Not really. You know, we would, we would, we would say it just because that was kind of like, you know, that was the banter that we had. Mm. Um, but we loved those guys, you know, we were incredibly happy for the success. Obviously their success was our success. So. To, to over, skip, oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, over your, I think all your career in Seattle was the same guy calling the plays, Daryl Bevel. This is a pro Daryl Bevel podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But on what turned out to be your final exit day in VMAC, you Defended him pretty vociferously. Um, what was that relationship like? Obviously, you had to deal with Pete's way of doing things on the offensive side. There was a, an emerging quarterback who was on the outskirts of MVP conversations pretty often. What was your relationship like, and how do you, how 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 was he in dealing with Pete's way, the quarterback, and especially post Super Bowl Forty Nine? Yeah, Bev Bev is just he's another one of those guys. It's just he's a good human being, you know, like. That there's not if if you got something bad to say about Daryl Bevel, I question what kind of person you are. You know, like 
and and yeah, you can we can question, you know, play calling, all that stuff. Like I, I disagree with that. Um, but you know, like I think the biggest the biggest thing that I loved about Daryl Bevel is that he took a group of guys who had strong personalities, right? And he became one of the guys, you know, like he was he he led from um a foundation of empathy, you know, like when we would, he would put out, put up plays, like we would go, you know, he would install plays and, you know, there was plays sometimes I'm like, I don't know what we're doing here. You know, like some guy we would, we would question, we would say, why are we doing this? And he would take the time to explain it. You know, I think at that level, when you have guys who know the sport and know, you know, the X's and O's to that degree, they, they don't want to know just what, they don't want to be told just what to do. They want to know the why. And, uh, Daryl just had a, a way of being able to explain it. You know, he had a way of being able to explain like, okay, why are we, why are we setting up this play? We're setting up this play so that in the fourth quarter, when this corner is tired and we need a big play, we can go at him because we know we've worn him down to this point, you know? And when you have a guy who um, is willing to take the time to build relation, to build genuine relationships with his guys explain the why behind things, um, you know, demonstrate his values and his, who he is as a, as a man, as a human being, is there something special there? Aside from, you know, all the fluff and, and the, the politics and the business of the sport of the, of the business of the NFL, you know, it's, I, I, I found it really hard to find people who were that grounded and Bev was that, you know, and, and if Bev was wrong, Bev would feel so bad about it, you know, like he would, he would genuinely, if he, if he did something wrong or if he, you know, there was one time Bev came to me and he was just like, you could just tell like his heart was hurting, you know, he was just really, really hurt about, you know, whatever it was. And it was for him to show his emotions, especially in a sport where you're not supposed to show your emotions like that. You know, it was, it was incredible. And, uh, you know, I talk about other guys who built the culture, but Bev was right there in it. Bev, Bev helped us build that culture as well. Talking about showing your emotions, a couple of years later, 2017, a lot of social activism and social justice stuff came to the fore in the NFL. And I was thinking, so I'm Jewish, a practicing Jew, and I've experienced, you know, anti-Semitism my whole life. Nothing violent, thank God, but there's always been something. And in 2019, we had an election here that put that to the fore. And I found myself having to publicly defend my community. And I wasn't ready to do it because I hadn't thought that I would ever have to do it. And it got yeah. me thinking that in 2017, with that season, the Kaepernick stuff, obviously the recent election, and you really came to the fore as a leader of your community. Did, did you feel ready for that? Because it was a position of huge responsibility for a young guy to take on, where the country was looking at its stars and saying like, lead us. And, and I can't imagine how difficult that must've been. Quite honestly, I didn't even know, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't look at it as um, I'm taking up this mantle of leadership. It was just, I was just genuinely speaking about how I felt, you know, what I was seeing and it just, it was how I felt, you know, it was what I believed in is what I thought, you know, I, I got questioned the other day about, um, it was back then when Trump was um, running for presidency, I called him an idiot, mm -hmm. you know? And they were like, do you still think he's an idiot? Yeah, I still think he's an idiot. I still think that 
he was divisive. He caused a lot of problems. And, you know, actually, I'm actually kind of glad he caused those problems. Some of them, let me clarify, some of those problems because he unearthed some of the issues that we hadn't dealt with in a long time. And now it's forcing us to deal with them. Um, I, I, never, I never took it as like stepping up to be a leader in this space. It was just, this was something I was passionate about. I have a platform and some influence to talk about it. So I'm going to talk about it. Uh, one part of that was in 2017 was uh, Mike Michael Bennett's experience in Las Vegas. What was the locker room like? Firstly, seeing that, hearing Michael Bennett's side of the story, what how what happened to him in Vegas? That must have been one a powerful thing to experience from so in, to, in such close proximity. Yeah, um, that was tough, and I don't. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for Mike, but I think that that situation really shifted something in him. You know, like you, you can't go through that experience and not, you know, you, and not be changed, you know? Um, and you could see it in Mike, you know, that was, that was really hard on Mike. He was really emotional about it and rightfully so, you know, like not just the situation with the law enforcement, but like being in a situation where, you feel completely unsafe, you know? Um, I, I, remember, I remember that time very vividly. Uh, it, was, it was emotional, but, you know, to his credit, like, you know, he, uh, he dealt with it, you know, he showed some emotion, but then he showed also the resiliency to like kind of come out of it, you know? Um, so I got to witness that too. And the culture, the culture created there, as we've said, you guys were emboldened to speak and be yourselves. And that was just such an amazing thing to see. But with so many guys that were cornerstones of that team, it seemed to end with it's now gone one step too far, according to the people that made the decisions. And as a fan, I'm looking at it thinking, well, you made these guys and you know, and you encourage them to be themselves and be themselves. And I talked about like a helium balloon kind of getting too high and eventually it just pops and, and it's nowhere. Is there any thought of like, being let down by the people that embolden you to speak so much, not you personally, but some of your teammates and then kind of having thrown back in their faces when it got too much, according to them? <laughs> um, To be honest, I never, I never thought of it like that. Um, you know, times change and um, the business of the sport kind of took its toll. Guys had to leave. We had to, you know, make changes. We, you know, Max Unger was an incredible leader on our offense, um, on our offensive line at that. And he was gone, you know, and he was a very strong voice of, um, of consistency and um, you know you, it, it, I think it's just it was just a process of changing you know and we were again hindsight is it's easy to go back and look and say we should have done this or should have done that but I think you know us as players we were still trying to figure it out you know Pete as the coach you know dealing with these guys that he's never dealt with before winning a Super Bowl he's never won a Super Bowl before right um, we were all just trying to figure it out you know, if anybody tells you that they have the answers, they're lying, mm -hmm. right? Because if that's the case, then well, maybe Tom Brady and LeBron James, since they go to championships every year. But, um, you know, for the most part, most of us just, we're just trying to figure it out as we go. 
Um, so I, I don't no, I don't I don't know if I feel that. Okay. Uh, Twenty eighteen, uh, you hope you were in the squad, which made its trip over these this side of the Atlantic. You had a pretty good day at Wembley Stadium, that now like ninety yards, four or five catches as well. What was that entire week like? Because for us, it was inc- well, we've been to Seattle four, five, six times now, and it was like that in opposite. We were the hosts, and we were trying to do, as Adam said numerous times in this pod, we were trying to do our damnedest to reciprocate the hospitality we've got over in Seattle, what was that whole week like? And what was it like playing in front of, which was a pretty partisan crowd for one of those games over there as well? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. You know, I think when we landed there, we didn't know what to expect, right? Like that was our first time in, in being in London for a game. Um, but, you know, it was, we had a lot of fun. We like the people were incredibly nice to us and um, we felt welcomed and, and, safe and you know just we felt like it was it was it was a really good experience the um the practice fields were dope because they were different like you know i think we were practicing on some soccer fields and the way that they had the soccer fields lined up it was just you know there's a lot more space than we were used to um so that that was that was cool but then when we got to the game and you know i i think i think i understand um you know, I, I guess, you know, American football is different than obviously what we would call soccer, but I could feel the energy, you know, like there was a certain energy and I, and I've only seen it on TV, you know, when I watched, you know, the premier league games or something like I could only, I only sensed it when I was watching through TV, but I felt it when we were in that stadium. And that was really, that was really incredible, you know, um, I'll never forget that experience. It was a fun experience. I actually, um, <laughs> I messed up my shoulder and my elbow really bad in that game. Um, that's another whole other story, but, um, you know, my, my enjoyment was cut short because I was, I had to deal with some injuries after that. You've, um, you don't speak an awful lot about the team so much anymore, but I've seen you, you know, tweeting about, you know, they should have given the ball to Martian on the first play of the game when he came back to San Francisco. And I think everyone in Seahawk world agreed with you. Um, and you're obviously, you know, I'm sure you still care about the team and you, you're seeing a transition from what it was when you were there to what it is now, which is much more of a quarterback-led thing. And it's very much Russell's team from the outside looking in. Is that, do you have any thoughts on it? Do you approve of it? Is, is that kind of how you would, would hope the team to progress? I mean, you, your, your relationship with Russ and things like that? I mean, be honest with you, I don't, I don't really pay attention to it as much as I used to, right? Like I'm not in the locker room. I don't, um, I just don't know what the ins and outs of, of the team are anymore. And there's a lot of new faces, right? So I don't even know what the dynamic of the team makeup looks like. Um, so I can't really comment on it, you know? Um, obviously I got guys there that I, you know, I watch, you know, obviously Russ and, and Bobby and KJ and, uh, Shaquille Griffin, you know, I was there a couple of years while he was there. So I wanted to see his progression. I, know, I saw he just signed with Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's got uh, obviously Tyler really close with Tyler, David Moore. Um, so, you know, there was, there's some, I guess, you know, connection there with the relationships, but as far as like knowing the ins and outs of the team and what, you know, what should be done, what shouldn't be done. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on this side just like you all are. 
<laughs> uh, end of 2018, you played in the Pro Bowl. Then three or four months later, we were. It was not Doug Baldwin, NFL wide receiver, as your Twitter handle says. It was Douglas Baldwin Jr., <laughs> husband and father, who used to do, used to play in the NFL. We spoke to Cliff about dealing with having to walk away as he did with injury. It sounds like a rough process to go through. Was was it the same for you? Because obviously we, we saw you in the Pro Bowl. There's a really cool video of you mic'd up at the Pro Bowl talking about how much you wish that Tyler was there as well. Then four or five minutes later, it's it's a tweet and a message saying that you, uh, your NFL career is over. Was, what was that process yeah. of humans like? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm still going through that transition phase. It's incredible incredibly challenging in a number of ways. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, my identity was wrapped up in football. I've been playing football since I was six years old, seven years old, and that's all I've known. And so when it's no longer there, when the, the structure and the regimen and the schedule and the instant affirmation and the gratification and, you know, all the things that come with that, when it's not there anymore, you know, it's like, who the hell am I? And I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know, I didn't, you know, I, I really, I really didn't know who Doug Baldwin was outside of football. And that's a really hard conversation to have with yourself at 30 years old when you're technically retired and you don't really have to do anything, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? You know, how, and, and, you know, for, for a long time, I was really bitter because I would go out and, um, people would say go Hawks or, you know, say something about the Seahawks. And it was still, it was really hard for me because I, you know, I, I had to leave, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't the fairy tale ending that all of us dream about having going out. And uh, it was really hard to navigate that. But then my daughter was born three days after I retired. And so I didn't really have much time to process that either, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had to, I had to become a father and, you know, help my wife out and with, you know, she becoming a new mother, I'm becoming a father. We had to lean on each other and figure out, figure out how we were going to do this together. And so that was a challenging time. Um, I will say this though, I have three therapists <laughs> and they, um, <laughs> they are paid extremely well <laughs> to help me navigate through this process, you know? Um, so that's, it's, it's, it, I, I can um, reiterate what Cliff said and say that it's a very challenging process, but, you know, luckily we have a lot of guys who still stayed here in Seattle. So we have that support system. Um, and we also, we weren't shy in terms of being able to focus on our mental health. You know, yeah. I think a lot of guys shy away from going to see a therapist and counselors because it's kind of taboo in some ways, but um, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't shy in doing that. So I think that that's definitely a benefit of ours. As as we said in the intro, we, we we don't really we don't do many of these. We don't really hear much on a public platform from you in this kind of context. Was it something that you were you were conscious of doing that you completely stepped? Or was it important for you to completely step out of that NFL spotlight for a little bit? Yeah, it was important for my mental health. <laughs> you know, like I I really needed time away from the sport. Um, and especially the Seahawks to kind of figure out like, what am I outside of it? You know, um, I'm starting to get there where I feel a little bit more comfortable, but at the same time, like, I don't want to talk about the team because I don't know the team, you know, I don't want to talk about what the team should and should not do or have any commentary on it. Cause you know, it's like, I'm not in the locker room. Um, but I still have an attachment to it, obviously, you know, my, 
my identity is still tied to it in some ways. And so um, there's always going to be that aspect of it. But um, yeah, I definitely need to step away from the game for my mental health. We mentioned before we started that you've got Coach Doug written as your um, Zoom handle. And I, I thought it was going to be like a, I know you said you hate T-ball. I thought it was going to be like a little league <laughs> fo football thing or something. And then uh, you, you gave a pretty cool story about the one of the things that you're working on right now, which relates to you being Coach Doug. So what are you doing now? You've got your foundation and, and also this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think you mentioned it earlier, the Family First Community Center, working on that constantly. Um, you know, we're in expanding that model, not just in Renton, but potential other sites as well. Um, so looking at figuring out what that looks like. Um, we do a whole bunch of different initiatives and projects around the community, trying to be creative and in innovative in the way that we serve. Um, and then I, you know, in some of my off time, I like to figure out fun ways to volunteer in one of the organizations called Ventures, ventures.org. Um, they provide curriculum to people who wouldn't typically be able to get this curriculum, business um, information, business course, you know, basics. Um, they provide that curriculum to them. And I got an opportunity to be a coach, right, to uh, kind of help people through that curriculum. So uh, and I I, I kind of like it, so I haven't changed it yet. <laughs> I, I know it's based on DAS. What it, kind of on that line? What's in the works and what long-term goals, if you have any, for change do you have? And what is? I think you've just touched on this there, but what is the largest challenge you faced after stepping away from playing? Uh, I, I, well, let me say this: I don't know what's next. Right? I'm uh, I'm still figuring that out. I'm just I'm gonna I'm kind of just gonna let. Um, you know, whatever opportunity is placed in front of me, if I feel called to go to it, I'll go to it. And then I'll, you know, I'll attack it just like I attacked routes on the football field. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to force anything right now. Um, you know, I got two daughters and my wife and we're building a family and we're constantly thinking about, you know, what does our family look like? What traditions are we going to have when we're older, you know, and thinking about, you know, my behavior now, my personality now, what are my daughters going to say about me when I'm gone? You know? Um, so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about those things. So leaving the game, that was the hardest transition going from, you know, what does my coach think? You know, how am I running this route and being able to like watch film on what I did wrong, you know? <laughs> Whereas in the real world, you don't have film on your life and going back to be able to rewind it and see what you did wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so the hardest transition was not, you know, having that structure and that framework, but really trying to figure out how I could use the tools that I gained in football and that I learned in football to apply it to my marriage and being a father and trying to be the best person that I could be. Um, I'm not fully there yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm learning, I'm, I'm learning a whole bunch about, you know, obviously as a father and husband, but just in life in general. And um, the one, the one thing that I am, I am proud of is that even if I make mistakes or if I do good things, or, you know, if I I'm challenged here or there's a weakness here, I'm aware of it, you know? Yeah. And I, I really think that was half the battle, just being aware of, you know, what I'm struggling with and when I'm struggling with it and knowing the, um, you know, the triggers. Um, so getting to that point has been really challenging. That's probably been the most challenging part of it. 
looking back on things as a whole, obviously you're doing, you've obviously done so much reflection uh, on your career since it finished, but whilst you were in it, did you get a chance to enjoy it enough and, and appreciate what was going on enough? Because I feel as a fan, I didn't enjoy us winning enough. Yeah. And I kept thinking, what's next? What's next? Without taking a chance to look at the view from the top of the mountain. Did you get yeah. enough of a chance to do that? I didn't. I feel the same way that you felt. And there was a quote by Derek Jeter when he retired. He said um, something along the lines of when you're in it, you can't really enjoy the wins and the mm -hmm. success because you're so focused on, like you said, what's next. You're so focused on being successful doing what it takes to be successful. Um, and so it's really hard to take a, a breather to say, Oh yeah, look, we won the Super Bowl. Look at all the things we accomplished. You know, um, <clears throat> I look back on it now and like, I, I can remember things that I didn't realize how cool they were back then. I didn't celebrate them back then, but I can celebrate them now, mm -hmm. you know, um, so yeah, there was definitely that part of it, but I don't think that I missed out because I can, you know, fortunate enough, I I'm still close to my teammates. We still have, you know, for the most part, everybody's healthy. And, you know, aside from T Jack, God bless his soul. Like we're all alive still. So, you know, we're able to reminisce about those things. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, even though we didn't celebrate it in the moment, we can still celebrate it now. Oh, I think we said this to Cliff. We said it to look. We've had Lover to to Tupu one a few weeks ago as well. What makes Seattle such an or the Pacific Northwest such an easy place for you guys to? Because obviously you're, you're you were from Florida originally. Obviously, then you went to Stanford yeah. and up in Seattle. What makes that area of the world, that community, so easy for you to settle and set up for future generations of Baldwin's? You know, um, the community the community here has such like a, um, a, a, a certain drive, you know, it's kind of like, um, I feel like people in Seattle feel like Seattle is underrated. You know, it's underappreciated. It doesn't get the attention that it deserves. It doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. And I felt like a lot of us on the team felt the same way when we got here, you know, we, um, <laughs> we, you know, we, Sharm was a fifth round draft pick. You know, um, Cam wasn't drafted where he wanted to be, even though Earl was a high draft pick. He didn't feel like he was drafted where he should have been. You know, all of us were like these guys who were kind of forgotten about or, you know, weren't highly um, touted coming in. But we had something to prove, you know, and there was a confidence behind what we believed and who we believed we were, we were on that football field. And I feel like Seattle kind of resembles that in a lot of ways, you know, um, and if, you know, you're asking me about raising children or raising a family, it's like there's a certain tenacity and, um, you know, mindset that I want my kids to have. Is, am I, am I, now, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying this now, but, you know, I had that same tenacity and mindset cultivated in me when I was in Pensacola, Florida, and when I got to Stanford, and then when I got to Seattle. And so I, I feel like I have a unique experience in seeing the different perspectives and, and feeling the different environment. And I think Seattle region, you know, you talk about, when I say Seattle region, I mean, Renton, I mean, Seattle, I mean, Tukwila, I mean, Bellevue, um, all these places have something special to them that, uh, you know, you could take parts of that and, and build what this region has become, you know? Uh, and so that's special to me yeah. for sure. 
It, it feels silly to put weight behind sporting moments as something that us as fans can remember, but this is more of a statement than anything else. When you scored that game-winning touchdown against Pittsburgh, I think you had four touchdowns that night. So Stuart had traveled 100 miles to watch a game in a pub, and I traveled 40 miles to go and watch the game with him. And we watched that with, I think it might have been the last time I ever met our yeah, chapter president, who sadly passed away from a heart attack a couple of months ago. And at 1.30 in the morning, there are 50 guys in the middle of a pub in London celebrating and going mad at something happening 5,000 miles away. And it just seems crazy that sport can do that. But is there any kind of, I don't want to say butterfly effect of what you're doing there, like the ripples of how it affects us, but do you get to appreciate that when you're playing, just how much some of the stuff you guys do means to people that just can't wait for Reflecting on my time is that, it was an incredible experience to get the support that we did from fans, you know, especially in those moments. I remember times where even when we lost the Super Bowl, we came back and the fans were lined up at the airport, you know, and all of us were down, all of us were sad, but to have kind of, you know, that level of support, even though we lost, you know, like I appreciated that and I'll never forget that, you know? Um, so I don't know if, I don't know if in the moment you could fully recognize, like you said, the ripple effect essentially, but cause we were all in it, you know, we were just all part of it, just trying to figure it out. But looking back on it now, I see the impact that it had, um, you know, not only on the fans and myself, but also the city, you know, the city, this city, but cities everywhere, you know, I'm, I'm talking, you guys are in the UK. I'm talking to you right now about, <laughs> you know, a, a shared experience that the sport brought to us. Uh, that's pretty powerful. That's pretty special. Mm-hmm. I think we lost you for, he's just dropped out. He's middle of, he lives in the middle of England and I don't think the internet travels uh, quite as well as, <laughs> as, as it does when I'm in London, but still recording. So a couple of silly ones. I think you're a Star Wars fan, if I'm not mistaken. I am. So I am. <laughs> I've come to the view that Rogue One is my favorite Star Wars movie. I'm in with you. I'm right yeah. there with you. Yeah. It felt it felt the most real, right? Mm-hmm. The most the most depth of emotion of the whole Star Wars story. Yeah, yeah. My wife has no interest, and she said, "Yeah, but they all died at the end." I said, "Yeah, well, that's kind of the point. It needed to happen <laughs> yeah. because forty years ago they made another film, which it kind of needed to match up." But I mean, I'm 33, I guess, with similar age. I didn't really get the nostalgia of the old films. So I, I kind of watched them when I was 20 for the first time. So Rogue One for me really, yeah. uh, really was the one. Um, yeah. So, Doug, over the years, you've put your flag on two drafty maths and absolutely nailed it. Paul Richardson, I think the day before the Seahawks drafted him, you called him out as a player to watch for the Seahawks on KJR with Softy. And a few years ago, and someone who's been a stalwart of my redraft leagues, Terry McLaurin, um, who came out of Ohio State and I was obviously killing it for Washington. What was the story of Richardson and there was a story from that software that you were championing him to Schneider and company on that draft weekend. I mean, honestly, it was just, I, I, I've, I've always done it. I've always like, <clears throat> cause I like the sport, you know, I like I, when I see guys that I, that I look at and I like, I like what I see. I, I, there's a certain emotion, a certain feeling I get when I see guys that play the sport at a, you know, at a certain clip, a different, a different, level i guess if you will paul was one of those guys terry was one of those guys um you know and i say these things but i don't know their personalities right i don't know what the interviews look like 
Um, I'm just watching game film. And so I, I make my predictions based on that. Yeah. And one more what final thing to wrap. Obviously, it's been, it's been unbelievable for both of us. Um, what makes Richard Sherman such a king? <laughs> such a king? Did you can you say, say such a king? Yeah, he, he did. But I, you, you, you know, you're his mate. You, you very can happily say that he's you know, a Jack 10, 987, whatever you want. That's fine. Oh, that's funny. Um, what makes Richard Sherman a king? Um, his confidence in himself. Um, and, you know, it's not, some people will look at it and say it's arrogance, but you got to really know who Richard Sherman is and you got to know where he came from. You know, you got to know his experience as um, as a kid and as a man. It's, you know, I, I was with him in college. I saw every step of the way. I saw how he was, you know, treated in a lot of situations. And, um, you know, he bet on himself. And not only did he bet on himself, but then he went to he went to work to make sure that whatever he stated that he was going to do, that he was capable of doing it, that he was going to do it. Um, and it's really impressive for somebody to have, you know, that level of resolve and resiliency, even when they're faced against obstacles, you know, when he got injured, he was like, no, this is not it. I'm going I'm to come back at, you know, and I'm going to play. And he did. And, you know, it, it took him a while, but he got back to a level where you could say like, Oh, like this is Richard Sherman, you know, um, there's a level of respectability there, you know? Um, and I really, I really value that part of him because, you know, whether he's, whether he's right or he's wrong, um, you know, when he, when he puts his mind to figuring something out, he's going to figure it out, you know, and um, I really respect that about him. Well, um, Stu's dropped out again, so I'm going to have to play impromptu host. He normally does great wrap-ups, but um, firstly, we're getting loads of messages saying, A, how much we've enjoyed this, and B, how they want, people want you to scout Sherman back the Pacific Northwest because we, we all think he's got a few good years left in him and I reckon there's a, a cornerback hole uh, in that team that could uh, certainly use number 25 being refilled and no one else should wear that number uh, And but if it's going to be worn again it'd be great to see him doing it for a couple more years and run it back I agree um, Doug thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure and a thrill for, for us to talk to you and um, yeah don't be a stranger because it's, it's, it's been great and uh, we've loved having you on thank you so much for your time Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we'll do it again. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Take care, man.